listening to Experimental History. I'm Adam Mastriani. Yes, that is how you say my last name. Uh, I've found that sometimes uh, people know me for years and have never heard my last name spoken aloud. And then there'll be some kind of situation where they have to say it. And I will see this look of terror come across their faces as they encounter that jumble of vowels in the back half. And they wonder how to do it. Um, so, Mastriani, in case in case we're ever in a fire. Um, all right. Why would you have to say it in a fire? Doesn't matter. This post is called Why Aren't Smart People Happier? Subtitle, A New Way to Think About Brain Power. Uh, as always, doing this <clears throat> in one take. Here's a definition of intelligence that lots of psychologists can get behind. Because it is from an actual paper about intelligence. uh, Quote, intelligence is a very general mental capability that, among other things, involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn quickly, and learn from experience. It is not merely book learning, a narrow academic skill, or test-taking smarts. Rather, it reflects a broader and deeper capability for comprehending our surroundings, catching on, making sense of things, or figuring out what to do. Intelligence so defined can be measured, and intelligence tests measure it well. End quote. Intelligence sounds pretty great. Who doesn't want to catch on and make sense? Hell, figuring out is pretty much all of life. Naturally, people with more of this mental horsepower must live happier lives. When they encounter a problem, they should use their superior problem-solving ability to solve it. Smarter people should do a better job making plans and getting what they want, and they should learn more from their mistakes and subsequently make fewer of them. All of this should add up to a life that makes smart people go, this life rules. So smarter people are happier, right? Well, this meta-analysis says no. Another says maybe a teeny tiny bit. This large nationally nationally representative study from the UK finds that people who score the lowest on an intelligence test are a little less happy than everyone else, but that's pretty much it. I also pulled data from the general social survey, which includes A, a short vocabulary test that seems to correlate reasonably well with longer intelligence tests. You can try it there at that link. And B, a simple measure of happiness. Taken all together, how would you say things are these days? Would you say that you are very happy, pretty happy, or not too happy? Across 50 years of data and 30,346 people, the folks who scored higher on the vocab tests were a tiny bit less happy. Um, for those of you who are interested, the, it's an R of negative 0.06 and a p-value less than 0.001. So what's going on here? That's what this section is called. Maybe our tests are bad. The psychological study of intelligence has a long, bleak history of racism and prejudice against poor people. Quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough, if you recall that. So we should be skeptical coming in. Psychologists have been trying to construct bias-free tests for a long time, but it's hard. There's a lot of links here. Whatever, you can read them if you want. Plus, people score higher on IQ tests when you pay them for performance. So what looks like a test of intelligence may in part be a test of how hard you're willing to try. But even if intelligence tests only measure something like ability to succeed in an unfair society or willingness to try hard, it only deepens the mystery. Shouldn't these people end up with happier lives, however unfair they may be? And and the tests likely do tap something more than just privilege and effort. There's plenty of skepticism toward intelligence tests in psychology, but even the biggest skeptics agree that IQ can predict things like how well you do in school and what kind of job you get, even accounting for all the criticisms. So why doesn't it also predict living a life that you like? This section is called Spearing Spearman. I think there's one guy to blame for this big mystery, and his name is Charles Spearman. Way back in 1904, Spearman noticed something weird. The same kids who did well on one subject in school tended to do well in other subjects too. 
The correlations were never perfect, of course, but they were pretty darn high, even across subjects that seemed pretty different from each other, like French and math. How come? Spearman figured there must be some general mental ability that humans use to solve all kinds of problems. He later wrote, quote, the, This continued tendency to success of the same person throughout all variations of both form and subject matter, that is to say, throughout all conscious aspects of cognition, whatever, appears only explicable by some factor lying deeper than the phenomena of consciousness. End quote. Helpfully, he also drew us a picture here. I have a, a picture from one of his books. It's just it's just the outline of a brain, and he has this little scribble in one of the parts of the brain, a lot of arrows pointing to it, and that is intelligence. This is, I think, exactly where everything went wrong with the study of intelligence for the next 119 years. It's not that Spearman's results were inaccurate. In fact, they've been replicated over and over. At this point, pretty much every paper on intelligence has to start out like this review from 2006. Quote, in the study of intelligence, one empirical phenomenon is well established. Test scores on cognitive tests tasks show a positive manifold. That is, they are invariably positively intercorrelated, albeit to varying degrees. This implies that people who score well on one cognitive test are likely to score well on other cognitive tests. The positive manifold is a robust phenomenon. End quote. Spearman's stats were sound, but his interpretation was wrong. He did not, as he claimed, observe a continued tendency to success throughout all variations of both form and subject matter, nor has anybody else. It merely looks as if we've varied all the forms and the subject matters because we have the wrong theory about what makes them different. We think tests of math, vocabulary, French, music, etc. are all different because some are about words and others about numbers and others are about sounds. But psychology, like all sciences, is about discovering the differences between seemingly similar things and discovering the similarities between seemingly different things. If psychologists ever had to march into battle, a good candidate for our crests may be the famous Mueller-Liar illusion, the one where there's two lines with uh, like arrowheads that either point in or out on the end that look like they're different lengths but aren't. Just like those lines, I think all of our various tests of intelligence aren't as different as they seem. They're full of problems that have a few important things in common. One, there are stable relationships between the variables. Two, there's no disagreement about whether the problems are problems or whether they've been solved. Three, they have clear boundaries. There is a finite amount of relevant information and possible actions. Four, the problems are repeatable. Although the details may change, the process for solving the problems does not. I think a good name for problems like these is well-defined. Well-defined problems can be very difficult, but they aren't mystical. You can write down instructions for solving them, and you can put them on a test. In fact, standardized tests, test items must be well-defined problems because they require indisputable answers. Matching a word to its synonym, finding the area of a trapezoid, putting pictures in the correct order, all common tasks on IQ tests are well-defined problems. Spearman was right that people differ in their ability to solve well-defined problems. But he was wrong that well-defined problems are the only kind of problems. Why can't I find someone to spend my life with? Should I be a dentist or a dancer? And how do I get my child to stop crying are all important but poorly defined problems. How can we all get along is not a multiple choice question. Neither is what do I do when my parents get old? And getting better at rotating shapes or remembering state capitals is not going to help you solve them. We all share some blame with Spearman, of course, because everybody talks about smarts as if they're one thing. Google smartest people in the world, and most of the results will be physicists, mathematicians, computer scientists, and chess masters. 
These are all difficult problems, but they are well-defined, and that makes it easy to rank people. The best chess player in the world is the one who can beat everybody else. The best mathematician in the world is the one who can solve problems that nobody else could solve. This makes it seem like the best chess players and mathematicians are not just the smartest in their fields, but the smartest in the whole world. This section is called the poorly defined problem of being alive. There is, unfortunately, no good word for skill at solving poorly defined problems. Insight, creativity, agency, self-knowledge, they're all part of it, but not all of it. Wisdom comes the closest, but it suggests a certain fustiness and grandeur, and poorly defined problems aren't just dramatic questions like, how do you live a good life? They're also everyday questions like, how do you host a good party, and how do you figure out what to do today? One way to spot people who are good at solving poorly defined problems is to look for people who feel good about their lives. How do I live a life I like is a humdinger of a poorly defined problem. The rules aren't stable. What makes you happy may make me miserable. The boundaries aren't clear. Literally anything I do could make me more happy or less happy. The problems are not repeatable. What made me happy when I was 21 may not make me happy when I'm 31. Nobody else can be completely sure whether I'm happy or not, and sometimes I'm not even sure. In fact, some people might claim I'm not really happy no matter what I say, unless I accept Jesus into my heart or reach nirvana or fall in love. If I think I'm happy before all that, I'm simply mistaken about what happiness is. This is why people who score well on intelligence tests and win lots of chess games are no, no, are no happier than the people who flunk the tests and lose at chess. <laughs> lose at chess. Lose at chess. Well-defined and poorly defined problems require completely different problem-solving skills. Life ain't chess. Nobody agrees on the rules, and the pieces do whatever they want, and the board covers the whole globe, as well as inside of your head, and possibly several metaphysical planes as well. This section is called, If You're So Smart, Why Are You So Dumb? Here's another way of looking at it. Say you want to test people's math ability. You design a test, administer it to a bunch of people, do all your psychometrics, etc. You're feeling pretty good about your math test, and then you find that some of the people who ace your test later say things like, 2 plus 2 is 19, and 88 is the biggest number. <laughs> Apparently, as, as a kid, my uh, my father took a video of me uh, counting, and, uh, and I made it to 88, and I couldn't get past 88. I just kept saying 88 over and over again. To me, 88 is the biggest number. Still is. You'd feel, if you've designed a test like that, you'd feel pretty embarrassed about your test because it's clearly not measuring mathematical ability if it's measuring anything at all. This is exactly the situation situ, exactly the situation we're in. This is exactly the situation we're in with tests that claim to measure people's reasoning and problem-solving ability. Christopher Langan, a guy who can score eye-popping numbers and IQ tests, believes that 9-11 was an inside job meant specifically to distract the public from his theories, and he claims that banks won't give him a loan because he's white. John Sununu supposedly has an IQ of 176, but he still had to resign from being George H.W. Bush's chief of staff because he flew to his dentist appointments using military jets. Bobby Fischer is one of the greatest chess players of all time, but he also claimed that Hitler was a good dude, the Holocaust didn't happen, and Jews murder Christian children for their blood, and they're doing it even today. That's a quote from him. Then there's the ever-lengthening list of professors at elite universities who've been disciplined or dismissed for doing things like sexually harassing colleagues and students, or completely making up data, or hanging out with a known pedophile. These are supposed to be some of the smartest people in the world, endowed with exceptional problem-solving abilities. And yet they're still unable to solve basic but poorly defined problems like maintain a basic grip on reality, and be a good person, and don't make any life-altering blunders. This section is called Gaze Upon Our Works and Despair. And here's another way of looking at it. 
Over the last generation, we've solved tons of well-defined problems. We eradicated smallpox and polio. We landed on the moon. We built better cars, refrigerators, and televisions. We even got 15 IQ points smarter. That's the Flynn effect. How and how did our incredible success make us feel? Well, and here's um, uh, survey data from uh, from Gallup from 1948 to 2019. Generally speaking, how would, happy would you say you are? Very, very happy, fairly happy, or not too happy. And the answers are exactly the same, uh, pretty much, in 2019 and 1949. It doesn't go anywhere. All that progress didn't make us a bit happier. I think there's an important lesson here. If solving a bunch of well-defined problems did not make our predecessors happier, it probably won't make us happier either. The barrier between you and everlasting bliss is probably not the size of your television, nor your ability to solve Raven's progressive matrices, which is part of a common part of IQ tests. To be clear, I still think it's good we did all this. Polio sucks. Going to the moon is awesome. I wish we knew more about how to make the bright green line on that graph of happiness go up, but we just haven't defined our problem of living, haven't yet defined the problem of living a happy life. We know that if you're starving, lonely, or in pain, you'll probably get happier if you get food, friends, and relief. After that, the returns diminish very quickly. You could read all the positive psychology you want, take the online version of The Science of Well-Being, Yale's most popular course ever, read my post on hacking the hedonic treadmill, that's, a, that's an older one, meditate, exercise, keep a gratitude journal, and after all that, maybe you'll be a smidge happier. Whatever else you think will make a big, permanent smile on your face, you're probably wrong. So if you're really looking for a transformative change in your happiness, you might be better off reading something ancient. The great thinkers of the distant past seem obsessed with figuring out how to live good lives. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Buddha, Confucius, Jesus, Marcus Aurelius, St. Augustine, even up through Thoreau and Vivekananda. But at some point, this kind of stuff apparently fell out of fashion. And hey, maybe that's because there's just more progress to make on the poorly defined problem of how do we live. But most well-defined problems were once defined poorly. For example, how do we land on the moon was a hopelessly poorly defined problem for most of human history. It only makes sense if you know that the moon is a big rock you can land on and not, say, a god floating in the sky. We slowly put some definitions around that problem, and then one day we sent an actual dude to the moon, and he walked around and was like, I'm on the moon now. If we can do that, maybe we can also figure out how to live good lives. It certainly seems worth to keep worth it to keep trying. This section is called, But Aren't There Multiple Intelligences? I'm not the first to propose that that general intelligence is more than one thing. Pretty much as soon as Spearman started claiming that intelligence is mainly one thing, other people started saying that intelligence is actually many things. That's science, baby. Today, the most popular version of this theory claims that there's something like eight intelligences ranging from visual spatial to bodily kinesthetic. I'm sympathetic to this take because it tries to account for all the different weird and wonderful things that humans can do, but it's got two big problems. Problem number one, people very rarely try to find any evidence for it, and when they do, they find that people who score high on one of the many intelligences tend to score high on the others too, just as Spearman would have predicted 100 years ago. Problem number two, when you label every human activity as its own intelligence, you give up any hope of understanding anything about the structure of problems in the world or how people solve them. We can make up whatever categories we want. They aren't given by God. The only reason to use some categories and not others is that some categories are useful and others aren't. For instance, we could have created a periodic table that organized the elements alphabetically or by color or how good they taste. Instead, we organize them by atomic number, not because that's their true order, but because it's useful. It helps us realize things like, hey, we've got a number 62 and a number 64. I wonder if there's a number 63 out there. We should go looking for it. So we should pick the way of categorizing intelligences that gives us the most bang for our buck. 
intelligence is many things, can't explain why people perform similarly across different tests, and intelligence is mostly one thing, can't answer a basic question like why aren't smart people happier. But we can handle both of those challenges when we split intelligence into skill at solving well-defined and poorly defined problems. And that's not all we can do. This section is called, oh boy, here comes the part about AI. People think of artificial intelligence as a big glob of problem-solving ability. If you make the glob bigger, it can solve harder problems. That's certainly been true so far. Gigantic globs of AI can now drive cars, defeat our greatest chess players, and predict how proteins will fold. All of this has happened very quickly, which may make it seem like we're careening toward a general artificial intelligence that can do all the things humans can. But if you split problems into well-defined and poorly defined, you'll notice that all of AI's progress has been on defined problems. That's what artificial intelligence does. In order to get AI to solve a problem, we have to give it data to learn from, and picking that data requires defining the problem. That doesn't mean the problems AI has solved so far are stupid or trivial. They're really important and interesting. They're all just well-defined problems. And we should expect that pattern to continue. For any well-defined problem, AI will eventually outperform humans. But for poorly defined problems, AI is hopeless. To solve those, we need humans running around doing weird human stuff. Quote, what about GPT-3, or now 4, or ChatGPT? It can write movie scripts. And what about Dolly 2? It can paint pictures. End quote. These AIs perform a clever trick. They make it seem like they're solving poorly defined problems when, they're, when under the hood, they're really solving well-defined problems. ChatGPT doesn't actually write movie scripts. It predicts what words should come next. Dolly 2 doesn't actually paint pictures. It matches words to images. These problems aren't easy to solve. That's why you need such a big glob of AI. But they obey clear, unchanging rules. They have bright boundaries, and you know precisely when you've solved them. They are well-defined problems. If you booted up a super smart AI in ancient Greece, fed it all human knowledge, and asked it how to land on the moon, it would respond, you can't land on the moon. The moon is a god floating in the sky. How would you get it to realize the moon is actually a big rock? That's a great, poorly defined problem, and I don't expect AI to solve it anytime soon. This section is called a uh, shout out to my grandma, and it's the final one. Here's one last advantage of dividing intelligence into well-defined well problem-solving and poorly-defined problem-solving. It reminds us to give some respect where respect is due. We've got no problem fawning over people who are good at solving well-defined problems. They get to be called professor and doctor. We pay them lots of money to teach us stuff. They get to join exclusive clubs like Mensa and the Prometheus Society. By, by the way, Mensa's page explaining IQ doesn't mention anything about the dark history of using intelligence tests to hurt people, and you might expect a bunch of smarty pants to, you know, use their brains to discuss things with a bit more nuance, but what do I know? I'm just a big dummy. People who are good at solving poorly defined problems don't get the same kind of kudos. They don't get any special title or clubs. There is no test they can take that will spit out a big honking number that will make everybody respect them. And that's a shame. My grandma does not know how to use the input button on her TV's remote control, but she does know how to raise a family full of good people who love each other, how to carry on through a tragedy, and how to make a perfect pumpkin pie. We sometimes condescendingly refer to this kind of wisdom as folksy or homespun, as if answering multiple-choice questions is real intelligence and living a good full life is just some down-home, gee-whiz, cutesy thing that little old ladies do. Excluding this kind of intelligence from our definitions doesn't just hurt our grandmas, it hurts us too. If you don't value the ability to solve poorly defined problems, you'll never get more of it. You won't seek out people who have that ability and try to learn from them, nor will you listen to them when they have something important to say. You'll spend your whole life trying to solve problems with cleverness when what you really need is wisdom. And you'll wonder why it never really seems to work. All of your optimizing, your straining to achieve and advance, your ruthless crusade to eliminate all the well-defined problems from your life, it doesn't actually seem to make your life any better.
If you're stuck trying to solve poorly defined problems with your slick, well-defined problem-solving skills, and you're lucky enough to have a grandma like mine still on Earth, my God, go see her. Shut up and listen to her for a while. And once you've learned something, maybe ask her if she needs help with her TV. Thanks for listening. This is Experimental History. Experimental History is um, made possible by um, by you. Uh, you if To support the blog and the podcast, you can go to experimental-history.com, sign up for a paid subscription, uh, get you access to all of the content there, um, including the secret posts, the mystery posts. Uh, the music, uh, the intro and outro music is by Brandon Rojar. He's on Spotify as Peak Pit. The uh, images were taken by my father in the 1980s. Uh, thanks so much for listening. I'll be back soon.